Here we go. Hey there, folks. This is your host, Cameron Ivey of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe? How are you doing today? I'm good, sir. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Got a, got a couple guests on today. Should Sweet. be a good show. Uh, we have the CEO at Atacama. Atacama. See, I already messed it up. Daniel H. Glancy and Jeremy Belfield. Uh, he's the head of marketing. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be Thank here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's go ahead and just dive into this thing. Let's start with Daniel. Uh, tell us about yourself. So uh, I'm an engineer turned finance guy turned back into engineer turned into a startup CEO. Um, that's sort of the quick version. Uh, <laughs> studied electrical engineering and physics, then did a bunch of stuff in the investment management world, then got really interested in cryptography for a variety of reasons, and then here I am having uh, entered the fun world of uh, enterprise security software startups, and I'm the, now the CEO of Atacama, a company we started a couple of years ago to provide a really unique form of encryption software. Have you now or have you ever been referred to as a quant? Ooh, no. I have <laughs> never been referred to as a quant, at least certainly not in the disparaging finance sense of the word. That was not the area of finance that I, within which I operated. Um, if anyone had referred to me as a quant, it might've been in a pure engineering sense. And in that case, I think it's acceptable, but I don't even think anyone's referred to me in that sense. So. Indeed, indeed. So tell us a bit about Atacama. You folks provide encryption technology. Um, what kind of problems are you solving in the privacy and security space? So encryption has been around for a very long time. Um, if you want to look at it sort of from a purely historical basis, like before computers, right? There were encryption ciphers that people used to scramble text as far as, you know, you know ancient times, right? <laughs> like Caesar cipher, right? Um, and then of course we have modern encryption techniques today, right? With, you know, probably the most well-known ones are, for example, uh, AES-256, uh, which is a symmetric cipher that was, uh, I, I guess, approved by NIST in 2000. I don't know if the word approved is the right word. And the NSA sort of said, they, they sort of said, this thing is okay and this thing is safe and secure. Um, but, and that's great, right? So we have these things, we have ways to encrypt. But the problem with encryption for data at rest, and I use that specifically, I talk about data at rest specifically, is that it tends to require passwords or the centralization of storage of keys. And that becomes a big problem because people forget their passwords. And unlike a website where you can reset your password if you've encrypted something and you lose your password or you lose the key, you are toast. And that creates a lot of problems. And 
as a consequence of the cumbersome nature of the user experience around encryption, I think a lot of individuals and enterprises have sort of eschewed using it because they say, I don't want to use this thing and end up in a quagmire where I can't get my data back and I have this problem. They end up kind of walking away from it, which is a shame because it's a really powerful tool in the security and privacy toolbox. And we said to ourselves, well, how do we create a situation where you're not going to be worried about losing your keys, your password, whatever, you know, however you want to frame it, and you still have all the benefits that encryption provides? And we came up with this idea, and there's a much, much longer backstory that's too long for this podcast, um, but someday maybe I'll tell you guys. We decided that the right way to do this is to take your keys and to split them into components using something known as threshold cryptography. The most well-known form of threshold cryptography is something known as Shamir's secret sharing scheme, which Jeremy, can you say that five times really quickly right now? God bless you. Shamir's secret sharing scheme. <laughs> five, five, time, five times? No. <laughs> Shamir's secret sharing scheme. Shamir's secret, anyway. Shamir's secret sharing scheme is a mechanism where you take any piece of data, and it could be a key, and you split it into components. And For example, you could split it into, say, four components, A, B, C, and D. And you can set a threshold, and let's say it's two, two pieces, that you would need to reassemble that key, right? So you could use A and B, or A and C, or D and B, any two of the four. And that's great, because if you lose one of the four, it doesn't matter. In fact, if you lose two of the four, it doesn't matter. And now we have this advantage of, of having multiple devices, right? I have my, my work computer, I have my home laptop, I have my smartphone, I have a tablet, and most people have multiple devices. And if they don't have multiple devices, they have friends who have devices, right? So there are lots of really great ways to split keys and do it in a way where you have this redundancy and you are resilient against the, this potential loss of a key. Uh, and you can also create these situations where it's really easy to use. You don't have to type in any password. You can just tap something on your phone and the key is very quickly and automatically reassembled and boom, the file's open. And that is the foundation on which we created Atacama. It's interesting. So key sharing and key stores in general um, certainly do add a lot of infrastructure and, and other challenges. So what do you do if someone leaves an organization? Like, what happens to their keys, but there's no keys. Walk me through this. So if there are a bunch of ways to handle that, right? So if somebody leaves an organization, and I'll sort of give you the, the most basic scenario. The most basic scenario is, uh, you know, you have a user at an enterprise and that user has, you know, three pieces of the key and one piece is on their laptop and one piece is on their phone. And then one piece is held by, you know, one of their colleagues right? Or the administrator, right? Um, and if that's the case, it's probably, a, you know, I'm going to say it's likely a BYOD environment. So they're going to take their device home with them and they're, they're going to have that one key and they're going to keep that, well, that one piece of the key, I should say, that one shard. Let's call that shard B. Let's say shard A is their laptop, shard B is their phone, shard C is the administrator, right? So uh, uh, shard, shard A, their laptop is going to go back to the company, right? With the computer. Shard B is going to go home with the person and shard C stays with the administrator. So there is no real capability. The user does not have two shards of the key and consequently the user doesn't walk, walk away with anything, right? Now, you could go further if you want, right? You could have a situation where uh, the user does have multiple shards on BYOD devices, 
And maybe, you know, there's a shard on the user's tablet. Well, we have a mechanism uh, uh, to reshuffle, so to speak, the shards of the key. So let's say there were four shards, A, B, C, and D, as I was describing earlier. Upon the employee's exit, we can reshuffle those shards and make a new set of shards, E, F, G, and H, right? And in so doing, essentially invalidate the shards that the user had on their has on their devices. So they still have you know shards B and C, but it doesn't make a difference because they're useless. That's interesting. That's very interesting. So in kind of the, the practical space, kind of walk us through, walk the audience through, if you would, the evolution of solving for these problems throughout security. So we, we you opened up by talking about ciphers and and how you know those were early ways of solving for these problems. But now we're all the way we're all the way where we're at now in 2020 and we're 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 sharding we're sharding keys and things of that nature so that we can reduce complexity. But ultimately um, the purpose of encryption, you know, keep information secure, but also to keep it private. So how have you seen the impact of privacy impact what you've been working on from a security perspective? They're so deeply intertwined. I almost do, so I almost don't know how to separate them. I can separate them definitionally. Certainly, I can do that, right? Right. Um, and I'll do that if you want. Separating them functionally becomes so much harder. Um, so you know, privacy, you know, defini- definitionally, right? I'm I'm not going to use the Webster definition of this. I'm going to I'm going to kind of go fly, fly from the seat of my pants here. But privacy is making sure that a, a user's or an entities or some individuals' data, personal private data that they do not want exposed to the world is not exposed to the world, right? That, you know, uh, I don't want my social security number exposed to the world and I take measures to prevent it from being exposed to the world. That's, that's privacy, right? You know, security sort of more strictly, I would say, is, you know, a set of functions undertaken by a person or an enterprise that prevent you know, in a, in a larger sense, an attacker from uh, from taking over systems, from exfiltrating data, which is an interlink to privacy, right? Um, from destroying systems, from impeding, you know, interrupting operations. So security is this broader term, right? And you could sort of say that one of the functions of security is to enable privacy Right, you know, for the user or user base. So, Dan, I'm going to jump in here. Let's go back a little bit. Let's go back because I'm I'm curious. So, integrations are pretty big nowadays, and I'd love to learn more about why integrations are so important and why companies should look at integrating some tools because of how they can help in operations and and the structure of how the company is when it comes to privacy and security, because obviously there's not a tool that can do everything. There's tools that can do things well because they're focusing on certain things. So can you kind of elaborate on how you guys help with that and just your, your opinion when it comes to integrations? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll answer that question in two ways. Sure. So, you know, from the perspective of, of encryption, Right. There's always this big question of, well, what should we encrypt? And 
that's not always the easiest question to answer, especially if you have a, you know, a gargantuan amount of data and that's what enterprises often have. And sort of what makes sense there is to have some mechanism of, of rooting through that data and saying, well, okay, this is important. This, it has stuff that's GDPR sensitive, you know, it has some PI, it has some other things that we don't want the world to see, right? It has intellectual property that's important to the company, right? Um, so we sort through that information and we put it into a bucket, right? And then we encrypt it. And I, you know, we do the encryption part. <laughs> I don't do the sorting part. We don't do that. Uh, so it, it, it's crucial to have these two things tightly integrated because, you know, they, they work so hand in hand, right? Yeah. I can't tell you precisely what to encrypt. I don't know what, I don't know what data you have, right? Um, and you know the, the 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 entity that's sorting through the data that you know they're gonna do a great job doing that. And then the, the, the sort of the next obvious question is, well, what do we do now? Right? right. So that's one of the reasons why integrations are, are are super important. I'll also say this: there are areas where you probably want to avoid integrations purposefully, and you know specifically with. I'll talk about encryption, but there are other areas. You talked about the fact that there's no one tool that does everything. I actually think that's actually, although that makes things less convenient, that's probably a good thing for yeah. security purposes. So to the extent that, that enterprises are using encryption nowadays, it tends to be interconnected with the enterprise's identity and access management system. So you have some sort of file system, for example, that's automatically decrypted in bulk when a user logs in, when a user authenticates with Active Directory. And that's not so good because if the adversary pretends to be the user, right, uh, then, you know, they, they log, they're authenticated with Active Directory and then the encryption is completely worthless. So you want to decouple these two things, right? So it's sort of a situation where you want to avoid integrations. So you want integrations where, the, where, the, where, you, where those integrations drive value and I would say classifying data and then encrypting it drives a ton of value. Uh, and you want to avoid integrations where, where they create security risks and hazards. And I, you know, the example that I gave is one of many. Right? There are other types of integrations that can create security hazards too. When you have the security of system B dependent on the security of system A, then the security of system B is, just, is oftentimes bunk. You just get nothing. Right. So... Good answers. Now, I, I'm i here because I, I love learning. So it's intriguing because this comes up a lot in my world. But let's go back to when you mentioned data at rest. And then obviously we have data in motion. And then you have structured and unstructured data. Where does where does your company fall in line with, with those other things besides data at rest? And if they don't if they're not included in there, what's the reason why? So data at rest and data in, in transit, or data in motion, if you prefer, are sometimes easily identifiable. It's sometimes easy to identify when the data is, quote, quote at rest and when the data is, quote, in transit. And uh, in, in those instances, you, there's sort of a clear path. And let me give you an example. Right. If you're, you know, you go to the website of your bank, it's HTTPS, right? That's the, that's data in transit and that's machine to machine uh, encryption. Right. Um, and 
the, the you know using for example you know ECDA, ECDH elliptic curve Diffie Hellman key exchange right and that's a solved problem right we we that's not that innovation has already been brought to long ago and we can we can do that and that works well right so that's very clearly data in, in transit you know files you know unstructured data sitting on disk that's very clearly data at rest where th- where the waters get a little murky is when you for example want to send a file from party a to party b and then during the various steps of that process and there are multiple steps it'll data will go from being at rest to being in use <laughs> to being at rest to being in transit <laughs> uh to being at rest to being in use to being in transit to being at rest again and i probably skipped some steps and and messed some things up there um and and that's where the muddy where the where the muddies get watered where the where the waters get a little muddied right where the waters get a little muddied um and we play very squarely in the overt data at rest space uh, very much so for unstructured data and newly so for structured data. I can talk about that in a little bit. And we also play uh, to a degree in the data in transit if, for example, you are sending structured data from party A to party B. Uh, and the, the area where we, play, where, we, where we do that, we do that in a way in which even though there may be some machine-to-machine encryption, that machine-to-machine encryption doesn't really protect the data across its full life cycle of being transmitted from party A to party B. That there are areas where an attacker can quite easily get in front of that data and you know take that piece of unstructured data and exfiltrate it and keep it for themselves. And what we do is we have a system in place where the data starts as encrypted data at rest in our system and through the full life cycle until it reaches party B, or it's say where the sender's party A, right? Until it reaches party B, it's encrypted for sure the whole way, you know, period, full stop. Uh, and it's done in a way that's, that's you know, I, I, I think my developers did a great job here, quite elegant. You don't have to do this clumsy thing where you're swapping passwords and, doing funky things, you know, like people have had the personal experience or many people have had the personal experience where they get a PDF from their accountant and the the accountant says, oh, it's encrypted. And then there's a subsequent email from the accountant that says your password is password one, two, three. (laughs) It's not not secure, (laughs) right? So none of that. (laughs) Um, We we have a much better way of handling it. Um, So, you you know, I think the, the waters can get a little muddy. We do this, we do the, we do the unstructured stuff uh, extremely well and cleanly. The data in transit stuff, you know, there's certain problems that we have no, no, part, we don't participate in. Like we don't, ECDH is already a thing. We don't, you don't need us for that, right? And but you know, sending a file, we do a great job there, right? And then on the structured side, we actually have a new product uh, that we're releasing that deals with encryption for databases, um, and you can in- encrypt at the field level if you want, and that we we're very excited about as well. Awesome. Well, you heard it here first on privacy, please. <laughs> uh, this is a question I always love to ask, especially CEOs of their own company, just to see what kind of answer we get. So if you only had a $100 budget, 
to use on security and privacy? Where would you start? Yeah. I'm going to answer this from the perspective of an individual user, just because I think it's, let me just think for, okay, yeah, I, I, I actually know what I would do here. The first thing I would do is I would go to the drugstore and I'd buy a throwaway cell phone <laughs> for, thir- for 30 bucks, okay? Why would I do that? Um, because if I do that and I pay for the refills in cash, or you, you could probably do it online with the, with the credit card, whatever, um, then uh, I'm never going to have my SIM card hijacked. And there are tons of you know, websites that still require 2FA you know, that's based on, on a cell phone number, SMS-based 2FA. And the fastest and easiest way to defeat that right, you know, for an attacker is to the attacker calls the phone company and says, you know, uh, I'm actually pretends to be me. And, you know, uh, and then suddenly they, you know, the phone company transfers their transfers my phone number to them. <laughs> right. And then they have access to all this stuff. Right. Um, so first thing is, let's get this. Let's let's separate uh, this identity component from the the uh, telephone companies. That's not really what they do for a living. <laughs> Right, and the way to do that is to have a throwaway cell phone where there's no number to call. Right, there is no customer service number to call and say, "Hey, I'm actually Dan." That's not a thing. Uh, what else would I do? I would probably buy a YubiKey, um, and I, I don't think I've fully exceeded my hundred dollar budget yet. I'm probably at like seventy or something like that, sixty. I don't know. Um, and I'd use that everywhere I possibly can. So, what else would I do? Um, I would probably get, I would probably get a subscription to uh, one of the numerous, and there are a handful uh, of, of good ones, uh, encrypted uh, email providers. Uh, the one that pops into my head is like Proton Mail. It's based in Switzerland, um, and I think that probably that probably maxes me out. Um, but just doing that, I will have covered a lot of bases. Uh, yeah. because I will have destroyed, you know, you know, use the YubiKey everywhere you can. It's becoming, you know, more widely, widely accepted, right? Use, if you're forced to use SMS-based 2FA, don't use your regular cell phone, you know, get a throwaway cell phone, or if you can't do that, get a Google voice number, right? That's not quite as good, but it's certainly much better, right? And then if you, if you're, you know, really privacy-minded, get a non-Gmail personal email account where it's encrypted. What do you mean? The free email service where you think everything's protected? <laughs> that was the most great. That was one of the, that was definitely a different answer than we've ever gotten, Gabe. That's, I think, honestly, not only was one of the best answers, it takes me back to our very first episode where we give some additional tips on other ways to, uh, to protect your privacy. And I think we should start aggregating all these. That was, that was really good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, wait. If I have 10 bucks left, get a VPN. Get a VPN. But bonus with Proton Mail, you can upgrade the VPN. Yeah, yeah, you probably can. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting too, because my this kind of leads into my next question. What are some of the challenges that you guys, being a new company, um, fairly new, but what are some of the challenges that you've come across this this last year, like everybody else? And and how are you overcoming it right now? Um, just with I don't know how many people are in your company, but I would imagine VPNs are in place or you would want them to be using a VPN, but I know companies struggle with that. Some companies might not uh, 
you know, their employees might not be using that VPN. What are you guys experiencing? Yeah. So, uh, so VPNs, and I'm glad you mentioned that. When I said a minute ago, if you have an extra 10 bucks, get a VPN. I meant like personal for your personal use. Yeah. Separately, yeah. the yeah, separately the type in this context. The best word, someone, I forget who said this to me. Uh, some CISO or some CIO said, said that, that, that he thinks that he views VPNs as quote creepy. Use the word creepy. And I said, yeah, creepy is a great word. And <laughs> the reason he described it that way, he said, look, he's like, he's like, I set up, I set up my whole network. It's really enclosed. Right? He's, he's working towards, you know, a ZTNA, you know, it's a, it's a zero trust uh, uh, network architecture, right? Um, he's really doing all the right things. It's like now all of a sudden I'm stuck using, having all my, all my staff VPN in with their like home laptops that could be infected with this thing and that thing and who knows what, right? And I right. and it's a it's a serious problem. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I think it's it's a it's certainly a big problem that that a lot of companies are facing right now. Um, one of the things, you know, how do you solve for that? Well, it's it's not it's not that straightforward, especially if you have a lot of stuff on sort of like old school network mounts. Not that old school, right? Um, you know, one way to, to solve for that is to move data to the to cloud storage. But then you have this other problem of, well, is that compliant? Is that actually secure? And that's where we try to come into play as a company and say, look, you don't have to trust the cloud storage provider. Um, you can encrypt using Atacama and then put the data anywhere you want. You can put it, you know, and you'd pick your, your cloud storage provider of, of choice, right? Pick the one that has the best SLA, right? Pick the one with the best redundancy, because they can't see anything, nor can anyone who attacks that cloud storage provider. Uh, and then, if you do that, if you do that, then uh, then you can hopefully get your users off that VPN. Now, that doesn't solve every problem, right? I mean, you know, there are a lot of other reasons why your users may be connecting to the VPN. But you know, one of the ways to migrate out is certainly to at least at least let's move the Z drive. <laughs> let's get rid of the Z drive. <laughs> Right, let's get rid of that, right? And let's also have the data encrypted. Um, but it's a problem during COVID. It's a real problem. Yeah. I mean, I guess my my curiosity around it was just how do you, con- you don't really have a way to control what your employees kind of do on a, in a sense. So for instance, if, if you're a company and, and this COVID thing hits and everybody starts working from home and then you, you, you know, set out a presidents to to use a VPN. Th- that changes a lot of things because now that company that might have been on prem has to look at man, these things are changing. We might need to move everything to a SaaS based solution or something like that. But th- does that fall into you know where your company can come in and help when it comes to encrypting that data, or is that even am I kind of out of left field on that one? Uh, not out of left field. It's not quite SaaS based, but it's it, it's um, what it what what it enables is it, the enterprise to say for the purpose of of the enterprise's users accessing data, we can take that data out of the enterprise's perimeter and put it in you know OneDrive, right? Yeah, and not be worried about you know the whether or not that data is secure because it's encrypted right? you're encrypting without a comma and 
you're not beholden to the security of OneDrive or pick your cloud provider. Got right? it. You don't you don't have to worry about that, right? You could put it in pastebin; it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Uh, you could put it on the curb; <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> you could, right? You no, you that that's look. That's the whole point, right? Yeah. So part of the part of the great part of the the awesomeness of encryption is once your data is encrypted. Then you could you could kind of put it anywhere you want, and I don't want to go I don't want to go too far with this, but you could you could put it in a great many places, and then your challenge then shifts, and what you're really looking for is the cheapest, most redundant, you know, most accessible, easiest to use place, right? Right, and you're you're a lot less worried about will an attacker get in. You could put it in an S3 bucket, right? Like, you know, it's sort it's sort of like who cares um, <laughs> if, if you're using real encryption. Okay. Super interesting. Gabe, do you have anything I do. to add to that? I do. Okay. I, I see an opportunity to pick on some folks, and I like picking on folks. You mm -hmm. use the words real encryption. Obviously, my ROT48 isn't real encryption, although I'll stand by it all day long. Right. What is not real encryption? Ooh. So you're saying there's a lot of hoax encryption out there? Okay. All right, Gabe. Um, <laughs> we can skip it. We can, you, no, you no, no, can no, 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 no. It's a, it's a it's a great question. Okay. Look, Challenge accepted. No, it's a great question. I don't often encounter. So the prior to AES, for example, right? Uh, the the standard was something called DES. Yeah. Right? And DES is is at this point pretty pretty crackable. <laughs> Uh, and and you could do this thing called triple DES, which is that's actually pretty secure. But I, I tend not to. I don't really see people using it. Usually, you see people using AES. And even with a 128-bit key, you're pretty secure, right? It's not so much when I say real encryption. It's not so much that there are problems with the ciphers, right? It's not. That's not. That doesn't tend to be the problem. It tends to be the implementation, ah. and it right. It tends to be where the keys are stored and how the keys are accessible, right? And that's where quote that's where when a real encryption. This comes back to keeping encryption disconnected from your identity and access management system, creating a situation where just because you've entered the castle, that does not mean you have the keys to decrypt the files, right? Yep. So. What I'll describe, so let's talk about what, what's fake encryption. Let me give you the opposite definition. What's fake encryption, okay? Fake encryption is, okay, I've, I've done full disk encryption on this thing, right? But who cares because the, the, on, on this server? But who cares because the server's on 24-7? It doesn't matter. Like, who cares? Right? It just doesn't matter, right? Or I have this encrypted volume. But the minute the server turns on or the minute the computer turns on, the volume is mounted and decrypted, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and so, and let me t let's talk about why this happens because I think that's a really important, an important point. You have a lot of regulations that, that crudely say you must encrypt your data at rest. And, you know, I think the regulators probably had the right things and the intention, the right intentions may have been there. But because the regulators tend not to be technologists, they don't quite understand what that means, right? And what it creates is a situation where you have a CISO saying, I got to encrypt my data at rest, but I can't really encrypt it 
in a good way because I can't have my users memorize a hundred thousand passwords. One, for, you know, one for each file. <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? So, in order for me to check the checkbox, I'm just going to encrypt everything in bulk, and I will be able to check the checkbox that says I'm using encryption for data at rest, and consequently I am compliant. But in reality, it's useless, right? And I would describe that as air quotes, fake encryption. It's not that they're not using AES as a cipher. That's probably what's being used. It's just that it's irrelevant. You know, what you highlighted with regards to full disk encryption is still a little bit of a craw in my, uh, wherever, wherever, you know, things get stuck in craws and whatnot. So I don't know. Um, because the point that you make about technology being in use in order to perform its function is one that we don't really get away from. Full disk encryption is absolutely a, a, a useful solution, especially for mobile computing, right? Like Because it has a much higher likelihood of having physical access compromise. But it's one of those things that seem to still hang around with us as a byproduct purely of regulation, even when the threat profile does not lend itself well to physical security being compromised. Right. It's like then 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 why do I prioritize full disk encryption over, say, you know, uh, file level encryption, folder level encryption, field level structured encryption um, of data that we know is actually at risk? That's uh, I, there's a whole religious bent I can get onto there. But now that's I, I appreciate you calling that out as bigger quotes, fake encryption. Well, not that one in particular, but nonetheless, yes. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And I'm, I, I, you're not poo -poo, I don't think you're poo-pooing uh, full disk encryption either, right? It, it's exactly as you described. It has its place, right? It's intended to protect against physical theft of a laptop, right? Like it does, it, it can be set up to do that. It can be set up to do that quite well, right? right? But then, then it's, you know, fit for purpose, right? For that, not for other stuff. It's like why? Why would you full disk encrypt your EC2 Linux volume? Like exactly. Who's who's stealing that physically? <laughs> but from a regulation standpoint, it, it will still say that server must have full disk encryption. It's like, does it though? Because I mean, unless Jeff Bezos is walking in there and snagging. I mean, I I know it is theoretically possible. Um, and hell, even theoretically, I may be off base there, just given the way that the resources are actually created and divided up. But yeah, there's there's a lot of things that we still uh, the infosec world in general brings a lot of legacy baggage with with it for what I might consider not really that old of an industry still, right? I mean, what are we going on? 40, 50 years, maybe? Certainly not a generation. It's not multiple generations old. So yeah, um, I'll, I'll stop beating up on full disk encryption because somewhere out there, someone someone's cursing cursing my very name under their breath. Of course, that was <laughs> no, I think, a lot, I think a lot of people would be, I think a lot of intelligent people would defend what you're saying because I think it's correct. And and the silliness of, it's a, it's a waste of time and resources. Here's another problem with it. To the extent that anyone who doesn't understand technology and what doesn't understand how these things work hears that it's quote encrypted right oh it's encrypted they will have a false sense of security and that's perhaps or and a false sense of privacy and that perhaps is the biggest danger yeah. right is is saying 
that it's it's encrypted. Oh well, if it's encrypted, we're okay. No, 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 no. It, we're not, uh, not in that context. Um, and giving people a false sense of security or a false sense of privacy is is one of the most destructive things. It's much better to just come out and say, "Look, this is not secure." Right? I would much rather have someone say to me, if, "You know, say to me, this thing is not secure. This thing is not safe." And then I'll say, "Okay, great. I'll be very careful about how I use it." <laughs> rather than telling me this thing is secure, this thing is safe, and it's not actually safe, and then I'm not as careful about how I use it, and then something bad happens. Right. Before we wrap things up, uh, I don't know if Jeremy, if you had anything to add um, from your expertise or just from the conversation in general, um, or Dan, you know what? What's been the proudest moment in your career? Was it starting this company? Was it something earlier on? Earlier on in your career? I uh, would love to know. I wish I could point to. No, I was going to say. I was about to say. I wish I could point to a quote proudest moment in my career. <laughs> um, I don't think I really have that. I'm. I'll say thing. The thing that I'm proud of. I'm quite proud of the team that we've built. I think we have a, a terrific team. Um, it's just not a moment. It's a you know it's a thing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's a we have a terrific team. Uh, you know, people really, you know, work hard to help each other. Um, I wish we had. A, I wish we could be back in the office because we, we used to have a really great culture in the office. We still have a great culture online, but it, you know, it just feels a little bit different. Yeah, it's different. Um, we have people who really understand what 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 it is that we're building and why it's important, and you know, they get it and they care about it and they're into it and they you know they they really. They, you know, bust their behinds to to get their work done, not because I'm a terrible uh, taskmaster, but, you know, but because they actually believe in what they're doing and care about it. Um, and I think that's terrific. And I, I absolutely love my team. And and they make me proud every day. Uh, I, every day someone comes to me with some innovation, some idea, something. And I'm like, wow, you guys are really thinking about this. Um and I love what that. it's about. It's my fa- yeah, it's my favorite thing about the job. Awesome. Well, Gabe, do you have anything before we roll into our deep, dark secrets of Daniel? I just <laughs> want to know why my feature request of Rot26 constantly gets denied, but whatever. We'll move on. It's in the queue. It's in the queue, yes. It's in the queue. Yes, yes. As a product, my tab. My- as a product guy myself, that's 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 my go-to answer. It's it's in the backlog, buddy. It's in the backlog. Right. <laughs> that's right. Put it on my tab. That's it. All right. Well, this is our last segment. It's our fun segment. We get a little personal, a little private. We learn more about your dark secrets, and uh, we'll just get rolling here. Let's start with an easy one. What is your biggest pet peeve? Um, overconfidence. Overconfidence. So, someone being cocky. Uh, I would say cocky is a slightly different category, but just overconfident people. Pe- people assuming that what they think they know is necessarily correct. And by the way, I'm guilty of it myself. <laughs> right. Uh, we all can be, I'm sure, in some way. We're all, right. We're all guilty of it. Uh, I just think it's we really need to try to rid ourselves of. Uh, it's the plague, uh, and we really need to say. Just because I think thing A doesn't mean that thing A is necessarily true. It really could be thing B or something in between the two. 
or some other thing. Yeah. Uh, and people tend to uh, overconfidence is just a thing that just you know it plagues everything. And it's really bad in uh, a, a commercial environment. It's really bad in a technical environment. It's, it's bad overall. Easy, that's an easy question. Yeah. Like having someone that has a closed mind, that's uh, not really open to um, changing or getting better. That has got to be yeah. the biggest. Yeah. Fun one for you here. What's the sexiest and least sexiest name? That you can that you can think of. Uh, it was really tough. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Um, the the sexiest name that I can think of is uh, Brunhilda. Ah, wow. Yeah, that'll do it. No, I'm okay. I'm drawing a blank. On sexiest name. Oh, come on now, don't be shy. Uh, well, I'm just trying. I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, you can go with your wife's name. You can go with. That's not. A, you know, I want to keep myself out of trouble, and I know <laughs> if I go there on I, in either direction, I will get in trouble. So uh, I'm That's smart fair. enough to know to know how to keep myself out of trouble much of the time. <laughs> um, I mean, so, I, like, I like to have my checks made out the cash. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. I, I, I'll tell you this. I, 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 I'm not sure I can come up with a name, but I can tell you, I find that product names often uh, either strike me as being too, really terrific or really terrible. Uh, so there, what was the, what's that? You're right. There is no in between what product names are. It's like, oh, that's good. And then it's like, what, what, what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. So there was like, th- there's that streaming service that just like went out of business. Yep. Yeah. Quibi, Kibi. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Qubi or something. Remember, yeah. Okay. Um, so I don't know if it's not a sexy name. I've been to myself. I was like, who with the like more than $1 billion of capital that they raised, they, like they couldn't come up with a good name. They, could, they came up with that. So <laughs> that's my answer to your question. Now, you know what? It was actually a trick question because it didn't necessarily state if it was a person or a thing or a name of a business. So I like the way you went with it. How is that QB thing not just like the the digital version of the producers? Like someone sat around and figured out a way to like have something intentionally fail as a way to... Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I thought it was an interesting idea, but at the same time, it's one of those ideas that's already an idea. They just tried to make it better. And if you host idea, to be fair, but you know. But I mean, it's it doesn't bring any kind of. Uh, you're not solving a problem. You're just making it more annoying because you can only watch it on your phone. <laughs> you can't watch it on any other device. You can't stream it to your TV. You have to watch it on your little tablet or phone. But, I read a really good piece of commentary about it. Hone in on one thing that you know startups tend to good good ones tend to engage in you know cheap small experiments wherever possible and if those experiments fail then they haven't destroyed all their capital and they can try another experiment right <laughs> right this was one very big expensive experiment uh and you know the criticism is really why not try it at a small scale and see if there's some traction there before uh, trying it at a large scale. Look, we've made our fair share of expensive mistakes. And what I try to do now, and I think it's not just for startups, for every every company, right? 
is because you're always experimenting, you're always trying new things, is as much as humanly possible, where, and it's not always easy, as much as humanly possible, try and start with small scale experiments where if it fails, you say, okay, it failed and I learned this thing and I learned not to do this. And maybe I learned something else along the way. Yeah. Well, they definitely got a lot of big actors that were a part of it. So not sure how much they had to pay for that, but uh, it was expensive. Let's move on to the next question. So what secret conspiracy would you like to start? Ooh, would I like to start? Mm-hmm. Oh man! Well, you can't just give me only one. <laughs> I, I, how come you didn't say conspiracy? Um, conspiracy. What secret conspiracy would I conspiracy would I like to start? <laughs> um, Not limited to mole people, just so we're clear. Good point. Uh, <laughs> can I talk about Can I talk about a secret spirit conspiracy that I'd like to stop? Sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then you're really you're really crawling to my mind here. Okay. You see your conspiracy, I'd like to stop. Uh this is this is you're gonna say this is really bizarre. Uh, the, the conspiracy that we have uh, in the United States and other westernized countries where uh capital formation, the process of putting together capital for for a venture or raising capital, more capital for a pre-existing venture has to be done according to this very specific and oddball set of rules that prohibit, for example, general solicitation. So you mm. can't, if you want to open up a dry cleaners, right? You can't put up signs in your neighborhood saying, I'm looking for capital or you're ad- you'd be advertising for, you know, for selling securities and you'd be, you'd be running afoul of the SEC. Uh, it's this bizarre thing. Um, <laughs> and the thought here is to try and pre- air quote protect like little investors, so to speak. Um, and meanwhile, we allow casino gambling, right? Like, so, we're not, you know, right. um, but the consequence of this, the consequence of these restrictions on capital formation, it, uh, they actually have these really perverse consequences. Right? So the first is you, you make it much more difficult for innovation to, to increase. Right? You, innovation is stymied because those who wish to innovate but don't have the capital to do so don't necessarily have the means to access the capital to do so. They can't advertise publicly and say, hey, I have this great idea. So what happens then? You basically have to go to, for example, VCs. So the whole venture industry is, I don't want to say entirely predicated, but to a degree, predicated on the existence of this, of these restrictions on capital formation. Right? You you wouldn't have to go to VCs if you could advertise publicly, and if you could just have an open market for capital formation. Uh, and we don't have that. And so uh, this whole thing that's supposed to be for the benefit of protecting a little guy from getting scammed by investing in a, the dry cleaners, right, actually inures to the benefit of these big VCs <laughs> who are the only ones who could invest in these deals, right? Uh, so I don't know if it's a, a conspiracy from the in the way that you would frame it. I view it as sort of conspiratorial, sort of, and I'm not sure people even view it in that light. But if you sort of take it apart, that's what it is, right? You're trying to prevent yeah. this behavior over here, right? But you, but you, you're enabling, you're al- allowing parallel behaviors, right? You're trying to prevent people from quote losing their money, although you're allowing that to happen in other contexts, gambling, right? Lottery, <laughs> right? But at the same time, you're actually 
enriching those who are in a special class who do have access to these things is quite twisted. Is it, uh, is, it a, is it a conspiracy or is it just good old fashioned uh, predatory capitalism? What is that? Mm. I don't know. Yeah. I would say it's good old-fashioned old predatory favoritism. Ah, I'm not yeah. sure, right? Because it would be capitalism either way, right? Right. right. We should do a poll. Right. <laughs> right. right. It's it, it, you have you've created the situation where you have a special class of people who are able to invest, and others are locked out. And I would describe it as good old-fashioned favoritism. So there's my there's the conspiracy. I'm not sure. I can't think of one that I'd want to start. But that's the one that I'd like to that I'd like to see. Go away. We have to start one that combats the one you just described. Like that's right. If you support this model of funding, the mole people will continue to funnel money out of this system and build up their underground network of tunnels in the core of the earth, um, plotting their, their takeover of the planet is is really what I think you're getting at here. I, I've secretly been supporting the mole people people for years. Well, uh, and technology, I, we don't like to go outside. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, and I would, I would do, I would go to great lengths to see them continue to succeed. So I'm a big fan of the of the mole people, and the folks, the folks with whom I with whom I work all know that I'm a big fan. Jeremy can attest to my <laughs> affinity for the mole people. Rise up. <laughs> all right. Well. Um... <laughs> What's invisible, but you wish people could see it? What's invisible, but I wish people could see it. Um, it's a hard one. The other side of the argument. Oh, wow. That was the good. other side of the argument tends to be invisible to the viewer. That's There's good. almost always another side of the argument. That's and I think that if you can't, articulate both sides of the argument if you can't it, it, it's sort of this this thing a versus b if you are so stuck that you you're so strongly believe that thing a is, is correct and you can't articulate why somebody else is advocating for thing b i don't know if you fully understand the whole situation i think it goes back to overconfidence and sort of we have a lot of polarization in society today across many different spectrums and i think like I said, again, again, I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, right? Um, but the other side of the argument tends to be invisible to the person who cares on, who advocates only for their own side. And that becomes very dangerous. I've also thought, by the way, just to get back to cryptography, I've always thought it'd be really cool if we could get a better visualization of how cryptography works. I saw someone do one with like finger paint to talk about how a key exchange works. That's kind of okay. It's really tough. It's really tough to create good visualizations of how public key, of how asymmetric cryptography works. It's just really tough to visualize. So there's another one that's invisible. <laughs> two, two totally <laughs> different items. That's awesome. Good answers. <clears throat> um, what's your most used emoji during texts? Oh, the smiley face. I'm trying to, nah, I use the wink a lot. I feel like that's shady. Wink that guy? All right. Out. The wink. Yeah, the yeah. wink people are like, what does that actually mean? 
Yeah, what is <laughs> he meaning thing. there? Right? Yeah, what does that mean? Right, that sounds shady. I right? just deliver his mail. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, wink, wink, wink. Right. Thanks for the mail, John. Wink. Right, yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> is he making a move on me? <laughs> Let's go. All right, this is a serious question for Gabe and I. Um, your, what's your toilet paper situation over there? Are you an under or over guy when you put the roll on? I'm an over guy, and my wife is is an under person. Ooh, so it creates all sorts of uh, it creates all issues. sorts of relationship conflicts. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem in the Galancy household. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, you know, I wish you hadn't brought up such a sensitive topic. Well, you know, that's what we do here on Privacy, please. Yeah. Um, you know, because you think about it, you got the over, which is what the normal society does. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, anyways. You are. You just said it. <laughs> <laughs> do live in a society. I mean, most of us <laughs> choose to adhere by the rules of said right. society. And some of the us others like to watch it burn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, Dan, uh, it was a, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Really appreciate, you know, what you do and for, for the company that you have and that you're running over there. Glad to hear things are going well, uh, really excited for the future for you guys. And, uh, we'll, we'll be, we'll be looking on from, from our end and thanks again for your time today. Cameron and Gabe, thank you both for having me on the show. Uh, it was terrific. I enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on until next time. Yeah, and if there's anywhere that uh, we can share, uh, if any links to the to the company, to your yeah. Twitter, to your right. any of your anywhere you want any pe- people to follow you and stuff like that, definitely send it my way, and I will put them in the show notes. Yeah, while while, while we're here, where where can folks find you online? Uh, what what do you, where are you on social media and and all the other places? Well, actually, since it's a privacy related podcast. I actually try to avoid social media for most of the time. I, I tend to be more of a viewer than a participant. I uh, I have a Twitter account and I have I have the I have the various accounts, but only very rarely do I post. And I usually only post if I see something that's not personal and that, that I somehow think is going to be funny. Right. If I, if, like it's funny to me, and I'm like that's kind of funny, and I'll post it. I think that <laughs> it, 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 social media tends to be uh, that's another different topic. Create, yeah. It creates all sorts of other interesting uh, uh, side effects. And I, I try to just kind of stay towards the sidelines. But uh, you can always, if someone's looking to contact me, I, I tend to make myself fairly accessible. So uh, uh, my, my email address is out there. My You can find me on LinkedIn. It's pretty easy to find me and send me a message. So uh, that's easy to do. And I'll, I can give you that info and you can put it in the show notes, of course. Sounds good. Sounds good. And Atacama, I assume we've got a website. Maybe they're on social media as well. Wait, Jeremy, did you build a website? <laughs> yes. Yes. We have, we have a website. That is uh, Atacama.com and Atacama across all socials. Beautiful. Awesome. Isn't it, nice? Isn't it nice when you have a company name that like, you don't even have to worry about fighting for all the, the real estate out there. It's like, that's, there's no one else. It's just you. I think we did okay there. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I don't know if you, you said it, but where did the name come from? My wife and I were driving through the Atacama Desert, spelled with a C instead of a K, in Chile. Uh, it was maybe two years ago or something. Uh, we were on vacation. And uh, we were we marveled at how beautiful it was and how there was nothing there. 
And I don't remember if, if she said it first or if I said it first, like Atacama. And then someone said like the data desert. And I was like, wait a second, it's going to be a great name. <laughs> uh, but we didn't want to spell it with a C because then, you know, you don't get the, you don't get the benefits of, of having uniqueness on Google. So we sure. searched it for a K and my uh, co-founder, Dimitri, actually loves words that have a K that have K's in them. So, uh, well, K's are cooler. K's are yeah. cooler. There you go. That that's how we came up with that. This is coming from a guy with a, a name with a C, but K's do look cooler. I'll be honest. <laughs> Very nice. Well, today's episode is brought to you by the number ten and the letters K, and uh, we're out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. We'll we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Yes. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week and to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I, I know that there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ... Can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week.